0: Hello and welcome to the Sasha Sessions, a Team USA podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Cohen, Olympic silver medalist in figure skating. Joining me this week is Simon Sinek. He popularized the concept of why in his TED Talk, which has become one of the most viewed TED Talks of all time. He is a dear friend of mine and has personally helped me with transitioning from being an athlete to finding my place in the world. Well, it's so lovely to see you and have you on my show, Simon. Uh, It's such a treat for me and I have so many things to say, so many things I want to ask you. First and foremost, you're my friend and such a dear friend. And when I met you, that was before I knew anything about you or your work. And then I quickly learned when strangers were approaching you in complete awe that you were someone special. And so then I Googled you. I was like, oh, oh, this guy's got this TED talk and all these things. I want to start the show with getting to the core of who you are, which I think has a lot to do with how you see the world and has to do with the books that you've written, has to do with your TED Talk, and I think really the reason why people are so in love with what you represent.
1: So I have a vision of the world that does not yet exist. I imagine a world in which the vast majority of people wake up every single morning inspired, feel safe at work, and return home fulfilled at the end of the day. It is what drives me. And I, I've devoted my career and even my personal life to advancing that vision. Um, I, I bet on leaders. I believe leaders are the best way in which we can build that world. So I, I, I've, I work very hard to find uh, support and engage with the leaders that I think are more likely to build that world. And I've turned myself also into the guinea pig for a lot of my work. You know, a lot of the stuff that I talk about or write about, I work very, very hard to do. It's, it's a journey. And I, I sort of a long time ago said, okay, if I'm going to start sharing my ideas, then I better practice them. And I better practice them as best as I can because I want to see it all. that it, if it all works um, and start with why is, is where it all began. Um, and the journey that I had when I started uh, with why, when I learned to completely change the way that I thought or communicated, um, it, it's what set me on this path in the first place.
0: And what was I'm sure many people are curious what the catalyst was for that because I think once people have read your book, start with why or seen your TED talk, it's like it seems obvious. I should be asking why I'm doing what I'm doing, not what I should do. But was there a moment or a catalyst in your life where you suddenly reframed and saw the world through this lens, so that why was the important thing to focus on?
1: You know, when we look back at these things, it's it always seems very sudden. But the reality is, it was an evolution. Ideas tend to evolve, and yes, there was a, a moment, you know, where I got hit on the head with inspiration. But I'm sure there are millions of little things that happened up until then. But the 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 folklore, the the way I sh- tell the story is that it really was born out of pain. I had what is considered, I guess part of the American dream. I owned my own business. We did great work. We had great clients. And yet after four years of doing that, I fell out of love. I fell out of love with my own work. I, I, I lost my passion. And, and I prided myself on being this happy-go-lucky guy that lost the happy and lost the go-lucky. And, and what
0: was your work at that time? I, I had a
1: marketing consultancy okay. at the time. I, I, I had a marketing career and sort of went off and, you know, went off by myself like, you know, so many people do. I kept that pain to myself because I was quite frankly, I was embarrassed. You know, I'm supposed to have this good life. I'm supposed to be happy. Superficially, everything was there. So I was embarrassed to say that I didn't want to do it anymore. And so all of my energy went into pretending that I was happier, more successful and more in control than I actually felt. And let me tell you, it's a high stress place to be. It's a dark place to be. It's a lonely place to be. Um, and all of those feelings compound and make other things. I became paranoid that, you know, I was going to get evicted from my apartment. I became paranoid that I was going to lose my business. I, I became paranoid. It just is, it was, That's it was what it's like. You know, that's what depression does to you. That's uh, what darkness does. And I was very lucky. Um, a dear friend of mine came to me and said, something's wrong. You're not, there's something wrong. And uh, she gave me a safe space to come clean, and I did. And I came clean and told her exactly how I felt. And it was such a cathartic experience. All of that energy that I went to lying, hiding, and faking every day could now be directed into actually finding a solution. You know, I was no longer embarrassed. Somebody knew. Just one person knew. That's all it took, you know? Um, And there was a confluence of events. Um, There was multiple things that happened, but it all culminated in this little discovery based on the biology of human decision-making, that every single one of us has to know three things. We have to know what we do, how we do it, and why we do it. And I came to the very obvious realization that I knew exactly what I did, and I was good at it. I knew how I did it. I could tell you the things that made me stand out from the crowd, you know, that made me different from those who did what I did also. But I couldn't tell you why I was doing it, you know? to be my own boss you know the, the sort of the standard you know things people say you know when they own their own little business and i was able to answer that question for the first time in my life i could tell you that i do what i do to inspire people to do what inspires them so together each of us can change our world and that's all i talked about this this concept of why became an obsession um it was the only thing i was interested in and i shared it with my friends just like you share a good book or a good movie with a friend, you know, because you want them to go enjoy themselves. I started talking about the why to my friends, and my friends started making crazy life changes, and they would invite me to their homes to share it with their friends. And I would show up in someone's living room in New York City, and you'd get one of those platters that you get at the supermarket, you know, with the celery and the carrots and the and the dip. You know, you'd just take the plastic cover off the top. And uh, I would talk about the why. And I'd give these little presentations to just friends, and I would help people find their why for $100 on the side. And more people just kept inviting me to talk about it and share it, and it sort of took on a life of its own.
0: And did that process look like honing into—how like does someone even begin to ask that question after 20 years, 30 years, 40 years of, of this autopilot that society sets out for you? What are you going to do? What's your title? How much do you make? Who do you manage? When you start to ask why, is it? Does it is it connected to your happiness, or how would someone even go about finding that?
1: So my rule about starting with why or learning your why is you have to want it. Every single person on the planet has a why and our why is unique. It is born out of our experiences when we were growing up, uh, when we came of age. Um, We are who we are and we can't change who we are at our core. And our lives offer us opportunities to live in balance with who we are or not. You can't change who you are. You can just be your best self. And so my first criterion is you have to want to know it. You have to want to know your own why. If you don't want to know, then as much as I'm happy to help, I'm not gonna, you know, and I tell all my friends, the answer is yes, but you have to ask me. And so that's part one. Part one is, is you have to, you know, it reminds me of the old joke, you know, how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? One, but the light bulb has to really want to change. (laughs) Um, And then it's a recognition that this is a journey. It's not an event. Though finding your why is an event, it's like having a child. Yeah, but you still have to raise the child for the next at least 18 years, you know? It's the same thing. Like, yeah, I'll tell you your why, but you'll, it'll, it's useless unless you do something with it, unless you foster it and learn from it and grow from it. And that's what I did. When I discovered my why, it's not like I knew what to do with it yet. I practiced. So when people say said to me, what do you do? And I wanted to start with why— they looked at me like I had twelve heads because I I couldn't get it out neatly and 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 nicely packaged. But I can tell you, I mean, there's multiple ways to find your why, um, and I can tell you one of them that's fun that every single person can do that will get you in the ballpark. It might get it might not get you the exact language, but it'll get you something that's at least actionable. It's called the friends exercise. Very simply, go to your friends who you love and they love you I, you can't do this with spouses or siblings the relationships are too close but the friends who love and love you who you love and love you the ones who if they called you at 3 o'clock in the morning evening, you would absolutely take the call and vice versa you know you could ask them anything they would delete your hard drives if you died you know those <laughs> serious level of friendship <laughs> yeah, serious serious, serious <laughs> friendship yeah um, uh, and ask them this question why are we friends and the irony is, is to find why you actually don't ask the question why. So they're going to look at you like you're crazy because you're asking them something deeply emotional. They don't necessarily have the language, at, you know, at, at their tips, at, at their fingertips, and so you immediately convert to a, a what question. Come on, what is it about me that I know that you would be there for me no matter what? And they'll 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 go like. Ugh. I don't know. It's not that they don't know. It's they don't have the language for the emotions. And that's why we ask what questions. And so they'll start describing you. Uh, You're funny. You're trustworthy. You're always there for me. And you have to play devil's advocate. You have to say, yeah, but that's just the definition of a friend. What is it about me that I know you'd be there for me no matter what? And again, they'll describe you and it'll get a little deeper, but they'll hem and they'll haw. And you can't help them. You can't let anybody else help them. You have to let them go through the process. And again, you play the the devil's advocate and eventually they'll give up. Eventually they'll stop describing you and they'll start describing themselves. And my friend said to me when I did this exercise with them, they said, look, Simon, I don't know. All I know is that I don't even have to talk to you. I can just be in the same room as you and I feel inspired. And I got goosebumps. In fact, I'm getting them right now. And if you have an emotional response to something your friends say about themselves, that's your why. Because that's the value you have in their lives. In fact, that's the value you have in everybody's life. And who you are when you're at your natural best is giving that away, giving that cause, giving that why away to people. And you can do it with multiple friends and they'll tell you, basically if not the exact same thing because that is your value in their lives that's why we're not friends with everybody but when we're at our best that is what we offer the world it's it's a fun exercise to do it's it's it's, it's so really interesting it
0: sounds like it's almost something that you can only see when it's reflected back at you to kind of step back and and look at the world as something greater which i could do once i left the world of sports you know i think i really struggled with trying to find my own why with you and and I think I realized that it was the community that I was missing there was no connection there was no there was no feedback loop and and I think that's such a beautiful way of tying that into meditation and your why and your your work in the world is that it's magnified in this in this bigger reflection and so I think that's something that not only I but many people find inspiring about you. It kind of segues me into kind of how we met talking about your latest book, The Infinite Game, and the way that athletes exist in a sport and the way that certain infinite leaders or players or people exist in the world. And I was wondering if you could kind of describe what that book is about and and maybe the moment in time where you're like aha this is an idea that needs to be written about and and people are missing something really important here
1: yeah as a circuitous way of getting to that i think we over index in our society on achievement like we
0: certainly
1: we achievement is is important but it has to have a context like what what is the reason we're we're driven to achieve and i and, and in discovering this concept of the infinite game i have become more interested less an achievement, but more interested in advancement, advancing something rather than achieving something, you know, uh, something a little more infinite. Uh, the, the concept is, comes from James Carcy. Um, he was a theologian, uh, from NYU and he wrote a little treatise called Finite and Infinite Games in 1986. Really, really simply finite games are known players, fixed rules and agreed upon objective. And the objective is to win, you know, mm-hmm. baseball, you know, and or
0: generally zero sum every,
1: and, and a, every sport. Every sport, there's, you know, you as an athlete, there are rules that you have to follow. Everybody agrees to those rules. If you don't follow those rules, you get disqualified, right? Those are the rules, Mm -hmm. right? It doesn't mean that the rules are right or wrong. It's just the rules that we've agreed to. And we all compete within the rules, and one of us will be crowned first, second third. I mean, and that's it, right? And that is the objective of a finite pursuit. There's always a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? You start the competition, you end the competition. Um, Infinite games are different. Uh, Infinite games have known and unknown players, um the rules are changeable you can play however you want and um the objective is to perpetuate the game to stay in the game as long as possible in other words there's no such thing as winning because there's no finish line so there's no such thing as winning in your marriage or in friendship um there's no such thing as winning education you know you can come in first at school with your grades but that doesn't mean education is over um uh there's no such thing as winning business You know, no no business is declared the winner of business. Um, But if we listen to the language of too many people, they talk about being number one, being the best, and beating their competition. Based on what? Based on what agreed upon objectives, based on what agreed upon timeframes. Um, And this is what I wrote about. If we are to be players in infinite games, we have no choice. That's how the games are. If we are to be players in infinite games, we actually have to change the way in which we both lead and manage ourselves in these games, so that we play for the game we're actually in. Because when we play with a finite mindset in an infinite game, there's a few very predictable and consistent outcomes, of which the uh, 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 amongst which include the decline of trust, the decline of cooperation, the decline of innovation. All of which contribute to the eventual decline and demise of the organization itself. And so that's what I wrote about. I wrote about if we are players in the infinite game, then we have to change the way in which in which we in which we play. And it's been profound to me to to go through the writing of this book. But as I was saying before, you know, we over-index um, and, and hero-worship the finite players. There's nothing wrong with admiring an Olympic athlete for their ability to overcome adversity and push themselves. But I, I think there's too much hero-worship of those who pursue finite objectives. Win, 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 win.
0: Where does that come from? Why Why did we evolve in that way?
1: Well, I mean, you know, we—you know, alphas in our society— are are the stronger ones. They're the smarter ones. They're the prettier ones. They're the, They're all. The, you know. They're the ones that do more. They're the ones we admire. Um, a completely separate subject, which we won't talk about, is you know to be an alpha in a, in a tribe usually meant that you had some sort of gift or strength that was to the benefit of the tribe. We live in a world now where you know you can become internet famous, contributing nothing back to society. That's a completely different subject. You know? Next book. Uh, next book. Yeah, <laughs> alphas have to offer value to the tribe. S- uh, uh, at great sacrifice, you know, but I think we over-index and hero worship um, achievers, and yet, what are they achieving? And, and you and I have had this conversation. You know, you take an individual athlete, you know, who who gets a gold medal or silver medal or bronze medal uh, at the Olympic Games, and we hero worship them because of their ability to achieve. Now, there's nothing wrong with being entertained by them. There's nothing wrong with admiring them. There's nothing wrong any of those things, but to hero worship them. I want to be like that. We're forgetting that the vast majority of individual Olympic athletes, it's an entirely selfish pursuit. They're not doing it for any greater good. And when they're interviewed, you know, by the presence like, oh, I'm so proud of, you know, inspiring all the little children. You know, nowhere in anybody's you know vision board are there little pictures of all the children i hope to inspire with my achievement that's complete nonsense it's pictures of themselves standing on the podium being number 1 being the best in the world you know and it is admirable to a point but but we also know that 10 years after you you medal everybody's forgotten your name and you can't compete anymore and then the question is what next you spend your entire life from childhood to be number 1 for yourself and then that's over and then what? And there's nothing – it is a good thing to, to – and you and I have talked about this, that it, that it is admirable to be willing to sacrifice your own interests, miss Thanksgiving, miss birthdays, you know, not have the kind of uh, childhood that a lot of quote-unquote normal kids have because you want to achieve your dream. I find that admirable. But in my mind, that is achievement. The question is to what end? What are you trying to advance with that achievement? And I think that's the piece that's missing. There's nothing inherently wrong with achievement. But we should be— But a, it's a
0: platform but it's for a platform. something greater.
1: Exactly. And, and I would like to see those who are high achievers be able to know that this achievement is in service to something else. I'm trying to progress something. It's not inspiring little children. and. Whatever that thing is, it is on the vision board. And, and maybe it's a bully pulpit. Maybe by achieving this, it'll give me the opportunity to—it'll give me a, a platform that I can go ad- advance towards that thing more, you know? But I, I think it's essential that there's an infinite context for the finite achievement. There's nothing wrong with finite achievement. It's good. It's important. It's necessary. To what end? And you can say that. You can say that about anything. I want to be a millionaire. Why? Why? You know, I talk to so many young entrepreneurs. You know, why did you start this business? Because I want to be self-sufficient. I want to be rich. So you're like Scrooge McDuck. You just roll around in dollar bills, $100 bills on your bed. No, of course not. There's a reason you want that money. Hopefully it's to do something else. And and I think we have this very sort of staccato way of viewing our lives, unfortunately, that is, as I said, over-indexed towards achievement rather than progress. For example, you know, I'm tired of talking to people who... Uh, I want to make money to do good. Why not do good making money, right? Like, why is the money before the good? I want to make money to do good as if without making money, I can't do good. I want to do good and make money. That's the correct order of things. I want to do good and achieve personal and and, and accomplish something personally, not accomplish something personally so I can do good. And I think that's the context. That's the infinite context for the finite achievement.
0: And what are the steps that we can take i guess to reprogram right because we do yeah. we have grown up in western society which has an emphasis on, L- on doing and not being yeah and we're very much judged you know and, and by daily. the way
1: and by the way it's to me it's not you know i i'm tired of people saying that as well we're human beings not human doings i'm like come on you got to get stuff done
0: <laughs> this is you true, know we can't just true. all
1: sit around kumbaya and meditating hippie communes like you know You know, as an aside, the reason there was a hippie movement in the nineteen sixties in the United States is because they had rich parents and they could afford not to work and just go be hippies. Sure. It's a privilege.
0: There's no hippie movement
1: in India, you know? Because they're not wealthy enough to just stop.
0: It's true. You we know? kind of forget the yeah. context and the privilege right. of being able to take that It was that the stand. baby
1: boomers who came back and started making tons of money after the war. And we saw GDP and household income skyrocket. And by the time they, their kids came of age in the 1960s, because they were popping out kids in the, in, in the early 40s, mid 40s, you know, you start to see the hippie movement in the 60s and 70s because they could afford it. Anyway, but I digress. Um,
0: but it's a balance, right? It's, it's, a ba- a, it's
1: about balance. Like, uh, it's about being and doing. Of course we're human beings and we have to get stuff done. And it's a—it's about the right balance. And we over-index on doing, right? We over-index on achievement. And those things have to be in service of. And so it's to to adopt an infinite mindset is a practice, not an event. Um, it's kind of like getting into shape, right? You can't get into shape by going to the gym for nine hours. So there's not like seven steps that I can tell you you have to do. And if you do these things, you're great. There are There, there, are, there are what I call practices. Like so to get into shape— you need to go to the gym. You need to eat healthily. You need to get enough sleep. You need to foster personal relationships. And if you do all those things, all of which require their own discipline and their own work and their own sacrifice, you will be a healthier person. And, the, and you can have goals. There's nothing wrong with having health goals and achievement goals. And I want to be a certain weight or whatever you want to do. whatever you. And if you miss that goal, it doesn't matter. You know, It's the trend that you're heading towards the goal. And the worst part is, is once you hit the goal, You have to keep doing those things for the rest of your life. That's a better analogy for the infinite game. I think of analogies, we overuse sports analogies, you know. Mm -hmm. The better analogy is about parenting or getting healthy because they're lifestyles. So an infinite mindset is a lifestyle. And there are five basic practices that you have to do. Uh, Pursue a just cause. Work to advance a just cause. You have to build trusting teams. You have to study your worthy rivals. You have to develop a capacity for existential flexibility prepare for existential flexibility, and you have to have the courage to lead. Um, put simply, um, you have to advance a just cause. In other words, you have to be a part of something bigger than yourself. You don't have to have come up with the cause yourself. I think we put too much pressure on ourselves. What's my vision? You don't have to have a vision, but you do have to find one. You can find somebody else's and adopt it. You know, Martin Luther King gave us a vision, a world in which You know, he imagined a world, he had a dream that one day little black children will hold hands on the playground with little white children, you know, that can become my vision too. So we're not all Steve Jobs, we're not all Martin Luther King, we're not all visionaries. So we don't have to have a vision, but we do have to find a vision. And maybe that could be the company we work for. And by the way, you can have multiple ones. You know, you can have a personal just cause, you can have a professional just cause, you can have a religious just cause. And the goal is to align Elements of your life to advance those causes. We have to have something that we can feel that our that our lives are contributing to something bigger than ourselves. That that our work is worth more than the money we make.
0: And does, am I right in finding that that it begins at an organizational level versus perhaps at a at a personal level? Like it doesn't
1: have, to. and it's 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 it doesn't have to. I mean, if if you're um, if you're a stay at home mom or stay at home dad. You know, you could have a vision about the life you want to provide for your children and your community, and you're completely devoted to it.
0: And just the way that you yeah. set goals for yourself. Yeah. And
1: again, achievement is still included in all these things, but to what end? We, ha- we want to achieve so that we can advance this greater good, you know? Um, uh, the next one is um, build trusting teams. At work, that's physically the team you work on. In our private lives, that's our friends. And like, families. Are we fostering trust? Are we acting uh, with integrity? Are we acting with honor? You know, or are we just trying to squeeze an extra dollar out of someone? And if you are, that's fine. Just be honest about it. You know, uh, um, I can't stand companies that lie. You know, every company these days is purpose-driven, and every website has our purpose, and everything sounds lofty and gorgeous. And then you go and actually look at the decisions they make, and you know, and not so much. You know, um, there are plenty of companies that you know, they're lying to us. Why? Because we all want to work for a company with purpose. So they lie to us. It's marketing. Um... It's not real. Doesn't doesn't spin. Re- doesn't, spin yeah, it doesn't actually good. foster trust. It might initially, but, you know, it's just like human beings. You go on a date and somebody tells you these wonderful things. You spend a little time with them. You realize they're full of it. You yeah. know, companies are the same. So we have to be active in building trusting teams professionally and personally. Um, it's to the benefit of advancing the just cause, right? If we all work together and we're willing to expose our vulnerabilities, to admit mistakes, ask for help, um, that's what trust is. Um, you know, without any fear of retribution of humiliation, in fact, total confidence that someone will rush to our support. That's what trust is. Without trusting teams, we're all lying, hiding, and faking every day. Hiding mistakes and hiding our vulnerabilities and our insecurities and never asking for help for fear that we'll be perceived as weak or And in, I or think inadequate. our society
0: does overemphasize individual uh, autonomy, and are, you know, it's it's almost a weakness to rely on mm. someone else or need someone else where that is actually a strength and the bond of, of community, right? And again,
1: it goes back to balance. Like if I have an, an, another entrepreneur quote to me how they're building their company based on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Maslow wasn't completely right. You know, he had this pyramid and at the mm-hmm. bottom he said, you know, most important is uh, food and sustenance and then, you know, security and then human relationships. Human relationships came third in the Maslow hierarchy of needs. I've never heard of anybody committing suicide because they were hungry. They would commit suicide because they're lonely. That means there's actually a need higher than food, right? Um, and Maslow's not wrong. He only considers us as individuals. And the problem is we are individuals and we are members of groups. And so it's not one or, it's one and. It is actually a paradox. It creates stress in our lives. Do we look after myself first? Or do we look after the group first? And there's an entire school of thought that say, no, 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 you have to look after yourself first. Otherwise, you're not strong enough to look after the group. And there's another entire school of thought that says, no, 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 you have to take care of the group first so the group can take care of you.
0: It's very much the Western, Eastern. Uh, but the problem is you're I both think. right
1: and you're both wrong. It's 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 a balance. And so we have to work very hard to find that balance. Um, total service to others is is. You'll, you'll wake up one day and hate your life. But total selfishness and total service to self actually makes you unhealthy and you have no trust around you.
0: I'm completely disconnected.
1: You're completely disconnected. So so investing time and energy to build trusting teams is, is what it means to be a social animal and those relationships are essential to finding fulfillment and joy in our lives. Um, relationships really matter to social animals. The next one is studying your worthy rivals. You know, in life, in this infinite game, we have competitors. No, we don't. Competitors exist in in finite games. You had competitors when when you skated because these were actually people that you the expectation was that you would get a higher score than them. They were your competition.
0: And we were ranked numerically. And you were ranked
1: numerically and it was objective, you know?
0: Well, maybe. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's Let's not. You, a no, range, no, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But there are rules that yeah. people are supposed to be following. It's true. And, yeah, and then you hope the judges are good judges and all the rest of it. But um, Some sports more objective than others.
0: (laughs) I wanted to ask you, there's a beautiful quote from one of your books, Leaders Eat Last. You know, it in this instance, it captures perhaps the business world, but I think it really speaks to sports, to celebrity, um, to so many things. And the quote is, all the perks, all the benefits and advantages you may get for the rank or position you hold, they aren't meant for you. They are meant for the role you fill. And when you leave your role, which eventually you will, they will give the ceramic cup to the person who replaces you because you only ever deserved a styrofoam cup. Tell me a little bit more about that. But I think that is – it's an identity question to me whereas you conflate who you are with what you do. And and all your worth and your friendships and your relationships are based on your role because perhaps you never cultivated – the other ones. Mm.
1: So that story, I'll tell the story because it's absolutely delightful. It's a story that was told to me about, it's a true story, about a former undersecretary of defense who was giving a speech at a large conference, you know, a thousand people, whatever it was. And he's standing there on the stage giving his prepared remarks, sipping his coffee out of the styrofoam cup and he sort of stops and smiles and then he goes off script. And extemporaneously, he says, you know, um, last year, I actually spoke at this exact same conference and last year, I was still the undersecretary. And I remember that they flew me here business class and there was a car waiting for me at the airport that took me to the hotel. Somebody had already checked me in and they just took me up to my room. In the morning, I came down and someone was waiting for me in the lobby and brought me to the same venue. They took me in the back entrance and they took me into the green room and they gave me a cup of coffee and a beautiful ceramic cup. He says, I'm no longer the undersecretary, so I flew here coach, and I took a taxi from the airport to the hotel and checked myself in. This morning, I came downstairs, and I took another taxi to the venue. I walked through the front door. I found my way backstage, and when I asked somebody, do you have any coffee, they pointed to the coffee machine in the corner, and I poured myself a cup of coffee into this here styrofoam cup. He says, the lesson is the ceramic cup was never meant for me. It was meant for the position I held. I deserve a styrofoam cup. And it is such a good reminder that, you know, we are given position and rank in our in our lives. And, you know, we work hard to achieve that position and rank for a simple reason, because we get more stuff. You know, you work your way up the ranks, you get more money, you get a better parking space, you get a bigger status, office. respect. And we, in, in society, we're hierarchical animals. Nobody has any problem with our alphas getting more stuff. Like, not a single person is morally offended by the idea that someone more senior in the company makes a higher salary. You may think they're an idiot, but no one has is morally offended by the idea that they make more money. The problem is, is are they willing to sacrifice their interest to save us or are they willing to sacrifice us to save their interests? And that's what morally offends us. It's not some CEO who makes a huge, a huge salary. It's when push comes to shove in hard times, is he gonna lay us off? Is he gonna use my livelihood to protect his bonus? Or will he sacrifice his bonus to protect my job? That's what morally offends us. What morally offends us is when our alphas, the ones who have a, who do have more, are they willing to hurt the tribe for themselves or willing? are they willing to sacrifice themselves for the benefit of the tribe? Because we're tribal animals. And we sometimes forget that um, all the perks that we're given, the nicer office, the better salaries, they're not meant for us. We are not entitled to those things. It's the position. And as soon as we're out of the position, they'll give it to the next person, not to us.
0: And I think that's why some people have this fear of retiring, why athletes, you know, we, we age out of what we're capable of doing physically. But even, you know, the CEO or chairman that kind of steps down, it's like people stop returning calls. Yeah. and and
1: Your jokes aren't as funny anymore. <laughs> how do we find
0: the balance of having a vision, having a dream, working really hard, putting, you know, a whole life into something and, and, and yet knowing that we have a separate identity outside of that?
1: Well, I think you just hit the nail on the head, which is you said to have a separate identity outside of that. I think we're— It's not that you have separate identity outside of that. It's that be be careful about wrapping your identity in the thing that you do, you know? And that's what we do. What do you do? I'm a skater. Mm -hmm. No, that's what you do. That's not who you are. That's not why you get out of bed in the morning. What do you do? I, you know, I'm in tech. And then what you find is when people leave those jobs or move into careers, change careers, or sometimes their careers are ended for them, you know, you age out of it, you said, you know, it happens, um... The problem is they spend so many years tying their personal identity to a thing that they do or a talent that they have that when they stop doing that thing, they literally have an identity crisis. I actually see this very often in, in very accomplished people in very senior people who when they stop doing that thing, they freak out um, because their identity is for, – for decades was tied to a thing that they did, not who they are, how they see the world and the work that they're doing to contribute to something bigger than themselves
0: and do you think this will always be a personal undertaking that it's going to be the individual's responsibility to cultivate who they really are and know that or that society will ever kind of come around and
1: well, society is just a collection of individuals. So you know if we it starts at, it, the, individual. It, 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 it starts at the individual level, but going back to our what we said previously, it's not my responsibility alone. Like it's my responsibility to help others that I love go through this process and ask for help because it's too hard to do. This life thing is way too difficult to do alone. This career thing, impossible to do alone. We're social animals. We need the help of others. We cannot lift heavy weights or solve complex problems alone. It's, it's just not done. And even if you had the mad scientist genius, even they had somebody who believed in them or took a risk on them or the day, that they, the day that they were down on themselves, they said, don't worry, I got your back. I believe in you. You know, Um it's my experience when I discovered the why. It was because somebody said, "I love you and I care about you and I'm here," that I had the courage to to find a solution. I had uh, to change directions, you know, to admit that I had failed. I wrote about it in the back of Start with Why. I wrote it at the back because because I, I know people most get don't get to the end of the book. <laughs> but, um, but I had to come to terms with my own failure. I had to admit that I was a failure before I could before I could um, take the next step in my life.
0: And I have, I guess, a few questions that tie into that, and one perhaps that's kind of part of what your why is, but what is success for you? And is success the same thing as happiness? Because I think personally, early in my, you know, in the first 20, 25 years of my life, success was winning, and winning was happiness, but it was fleeting, it was temporary, um, but it was the only paradigm that I knew, and I think— As I've left my sport, I kind of assume that because I didn't win everything that I wanted to win, that's why I wasn't happy.
1: You were only the second best in the world, which is insane. That's incredible.
0: But still, but then when (laughs) I, you know, I've started to have conversations with, you know, athletes like Michael Phelps, someone that has won everything and set records. And if he's not happy and he won everything, maybe it's not about winning. Maybe there's something else. And so— I'm trying to figure out what is success because success doesn't seem like winning, but you probably already know this. Well,
1: success is a broad category. The question is how do you find, define success? And
0: how do you personally <clears> define it?
1: And I think it is perfectly fair to, uh, to connect winning and happiness because there's no question when you won a medal or a competition, you felt really good. But that feeling goes away. Mm-hmm. Happiness is fleeting. You know, winning a client – you know getting a promotion you know whatever they are you know completing a project hitting a deadline it all feels amazing and it is happy it is but the problem is the 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 feeling is fleeting and so we have to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it and and happiness is important but the the thing that i talk about is joy or fulfillment you know which is more steady and less highs and lows you know and i it's it's the difference between like and love you, know, you don't like your children every day, but you love them every day. You don't like your spouse every day, but you love them every day. You know, and so fulfillment doesn't mean you have to like your job every day, but you do get to love your job every day. Every one of us gets to love our job every day, if you know. And our companies are responsible for providing a, an environment in which we can fall in love with our company and fall in love with our jobs. And happiness and just winning and achieving is just—it's just not enough. It's both.
0: It's a sugar high. It's you a know, sugar it lasts high, for right? A little bit, and then you need. Yeah, more. and
1: there's nothing wrong with it. But let's be honest. That is not a way to live a life. You know, it's it should be exactly as it is, which is comes now and then. Mm-hmm. You know, so the way I have defined success for myself is about momentum. It's less about individual achievements, and it's more about the momentum moving towards this vision that I have. I think of it like an iceberg. You know, my entire career. In the early, early days, you know, I had this vision of the world that didn't yet exist, which is basically like an iceberg, and most of it existed in my imagination. And when I started talking about these things, having accomplished nothing in my life, people saw maybe the tip of an iceberg, which was just me, and they went, "Uh, yeah, you know, good for you. But if if I was good enough at describing what I could see, even though no one else could see, all I needed was one or two people go, that's amazing. I can see what you imagine. Let's do that. And we had a couple of successes and a little more iceberg would, would come above the, 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 the waterline. And we had a few more successes and a few more people joined us in pursuit and more of the iceberg shows. And then I do a TED talk and more of, and people are like, wow, that's actually a real thing, you know, and more of the iceberg shows. And then enough of the iceberg shows that people say, wow, we can actually live a life where we all feel inspired, safe, and fulfilled. I, I believe it now. I see it right? But throughout my entire career, no matter what I've achieved, no matter the achievements, I always say the same thing. People go, that's amazing. You've accomplished that. And I always say tip of the iceberg. I said tip of the iceberg when I was first starting out. And 13 years in, no matter what somebody says about, you know, all these achievements and people, I'll still say the same thing tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's about momentum. It's about revealing the iceberg. And I work very hard to create a momentum that doesn't rely on me. It's not the force of personality. And I'm looking for all the ways that, that I can take comfort, that there's enough momentum, that there's enough people who've joined me in pursuit of creating a world and building organizations in which we can build a world in which people feel inspired, safe, and fulfilled every day of their lives, that I can die and know that it'll continue without me. And that to me, and I look at the great, the great movement leaders. Martin Luther King was assassinated, and the movement continued without him. Mahatma Gandhi was assassinated, and the movement continued without him. And you have great CEOs who retired and moved on, and their businesses continue to grow without them, and and or or people who lived their lives to their to the full. You know, George Washington lived a lovely full life, and when he when he decided he wasn't going to run for president for the third time even though everybody wanted him to and he was a shoo-in, he said, no, it's only appropriate that somebody else continue this. That is what this is about. It's not about me. And I think the ability to retire with absolute confidence that others will continue in the right direction is, is to me what, what how I try and define success. So It's not any particular achievement, but all of the achievements are stepping stones along the way to helping me feel that the movement can continue without me. I'm just a piece of a jigsaw puzzle. Um, and so that's the trick. I don't think I'm there yet. I'm not sure I'm there yet. I, 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 but even in my own company, like my standard for my own business was, uh, was if I retire, I, I call it the school bus test. Like what if the CEO gets hit by a school bus? You know, will the company just shut down? And most small businesses fail the school bus test because most of them are built on force of personality, you know? So the question is, if you got helped by a school bus, if you retired or left, will, would the people want to continue to grow the business without you? And that's a, that's a, hard, that's a high standard. Um, and it's, you make very different decisions accordingly. Um, they're not always the, the short-term decisions. They become the more long-term decisions. They're not necessarily uh, – it's, it's, it's much more difficult. And I've set myself a challenge. But again, remember, it goes back to the beginning, which is I always said that I was a guinea pig. I don't think I'm right. I don't think I have all the answers. I simply have a perspective.
0: You have a vision for just, another way of living.
1: And all of my books are incomplete. You know, I you know start with why as how it begins. It's just a starting point. And leaders eat last was the thing that comes next and the infinite game is the thing that comes next. And it's just my journey and it just turns out, you know, I happen to be human turns out my journey is actually the same as everybody else's journey because we're all humans kind of on a similar path. We all want to wake up and feel like a part of something bigger than ourselves. We want to to feel physically and psychologically safe. And we want to feel that if we work hard, we can enjoy the fruits of our own labor and provide for our families and take nice vacations because we worked hard for it. Like, we all want that. We all want that. Every human being on the planet wants that. And we debate the best ways to get that and... You know, various philosophers have their different isms on how the best way to give those three things, whether it's socialism or capitalism or, you know, whatever it is, but they're all the pursuit of the same three things. Um, And so, you know, again, I don't have answers. I don't – I just have a perspective. And it's my journey and turns out my journey is our journey. It's it's a human journey.
0: Well, your journey has been, I think, visionary. Not only, I think, your own experiences but – The platform that you've enabled others to see through your eyes, because I think other people may be more unsure or kind of stuck in a more myopic view and don't quite realize they have permission to go against the norm that society sets out for them. So I think what you've laid out, this this vision, this mission that's bigger than you, is such an important message for children um, and people growing up that it's not about me. It's about something I'm trying to do in the world. And I think separating those two is not only the key for a better world, but to be a happier person. Um, and then that brings me to one more question and then a final wrap-up question. The penultimate question. Please. Yes. I mean, you're such an, your mind works in such incredible ways and your vision of a better world that, you know, isn't centered on you. It kind of makes me wonder what – if you had to pick one influence, whether it was a book, a person, or an event, or a life philosophy that you adopted that, that's most shaped you or most defined you in your life, can you, can you think of it? I know that's a hard question. I, I mean, who knows?
1: You know, I, I'm I'm a product of many pieces of, of, of a jigsaw puzzle, as we all are. Um, but I can tell you that I draw great inspiration from from acts of sacrifice. Um, uh, I'm equally inspired and have deep love for artists as much as I do for f- folks in uniform. Um, I find them to be the exact same personality. They find, you know, you. I find that what they both do, they both undertake without with the knowledge that they're will the they're, they're not going to get rich, you know? Mm-hmm. As somebody I, I know in the military said, this is my get-rich-slow plan. <laughs> um, for them, it's a compulsion. You know, it's a calling. They talk about it being a calling. Artists and folks in uniform call it a calling. Um, so they don't do it for money. It's a calling. And they're willing to sacrifice money, time, energy, so that they may do something of service to others. An artist does something f- so that we may benefit. You, you, there's no point performing a dance, piece by yourself in your living room or painting a painting that never gets seen or writing a poem that never gets heard or writing a book that never gets read like that's not art that's just i don't know it's a hobby i don't know what that is right
0: personal therapy it's (laughs) personal therapy yeah
1: or a vanity project yeah so it's an act of service art is an act of service like you know volunteering is an act of service and so i can be brought to tears with stories of of sacrifice very easily and so it's one of the reasons I love spending time with artists and f- folks in uniform because I'm just, I, I have so much to learn from them. I don't have their courage. I don't have their devotion, dedication. I don't have their, their, their discipline. And I'm in awe of them. Um, and I'm very lucky that I've made some very close friends that I learn from. Um, and so for me, I guess if, if you forced me to pick a thing, it would be service.
0: That's a beautiful, it's a beautiful sentiment, you know, acts of sacrifice and service, because I think we kind of forget about that. These other things pop up, but those are the things that truly move us, what people will do for someone else Mm. or for a cause.
1: It's the the silly stories on the news about, you know, somebody who, you know, stopped to rescue a puppy dog or like, it'll get me every time.
0: It's a good reminder. And, And the last question is, even though you're not an Olympic athlete, uh, I asked all my guests what their Olympic moment in life would be. That that, aha, this is what I've been working for. And I'm on I've hiked Everest. I'm looking down this this moment, this penultimate moment in your life. Uh, whether it was maybe giving your first TED Talk or your work with men and women in uniform, or I don't know if there was like one moment in your life where it was this aha Olympic moment.
1: Uh, it's none of those things. I'm proud of those things, but I wouldn't call those things Olympic moments. If, if I, again, if you force me to pick one thing, it's, it's the thing that I'm most proud of in my work is that it is no longer, it's no longer about me. You know, I'm no longer the, the, the lone drummer out there beating the drum. And, um, you know, the concept of why, which is talked about and written about in newspapers and magazines now, that company doesn't know their why, they need to know their why with no reference to me. And the people who are writing may not even know my name. That is, to me, this a, a, a sign that that the work has value that is is now in in it's in society. It's in the vernacular, and to see that there's now a movement away from the short-termism, you know, selfish uh, mindset of the '80s and '90s. That is largely how we built business in in America today, you know, and it's, we now see a movement towards more of a selfless purpose-driven something or other that I, that I got to play a part in that. Um, I'm a piece of that jigsaw puzzle. When I see the direction of that, where the world is going and the, and the, and that, and that future is bright, I take great pride that I can see it, that tiny little piece over there on the, on the left, that little one over there, that's my piece.
0: I think starting a movement qualifies as an Olympic moment. I don't think moment. I
1: started it. But well, I, you were an integral I, piece. Of I have a good piece. Yeah, I have, yeah, I have a piece. You gave a
0: big push to that boulder. I got, an, I
1: got a really good <laughs> piece. I can see it. It's a nice little, nice little orange piece over in the corner of the puzzle, and I'm proud of that piece.
0: Oh, well, Simon, this conversation was incredible. Your thoughts just... It's always a privilege to to get to have deep conversations with you. And I know the audience will so appreciate getting a, a bird's eye view into your mind. So thank you for taking the time.
1: It's a joy. Uh, I, I love talking to you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Please subscribe to Sasha Sessions wherever you get your podcasts. You can find new episodes every Monday. Produced by Bigfoot Music and Sound in New York City.